In the movie We Bought a Zoo, actor Matt Damon is speaking to his son who says, it's like you embarrass yourself if you say something, and you embarrass yourself if you don't. But what if there was a way to give you the confidence to speak without putting your foot in your mouth? Hello again and welcome to the Resilient Journey podcast sponsored by Clear Risk. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today I'm unbelievably lucky to have as my guest Mr. Media Training himself, Brad Phillips. Brad is the president of The Throughline Group, an organization that specializes in media and presentation coaching. Listen today as Brad explains why confidence is key and why those who go through the process understand the power of preparation. Brad also explains the most common causes for executives putting their foot in their mouth and making matters worse. We'll get into all of this with Brad after this from my friends at ClearRisk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis, helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Hey, Brad, welcome to the podcast. I am extremely honored to, to have you here. As I told you when we first started speaking, I feel a little bit like I'm fighting above my weight class, but thanks for doing this. Well, it's my pleasure and not at all. I'm happy that uh, hopefully both of us will be heavyweights together in this episode. Yeah, that's right. Now, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, sure. Uh, I am today the president of a company called Throughline Group. We specialize in media and presentation coaching. We've been around since about 2004. Before that, I was a broadcast journalist with ABC News and CNN. Uh, so, you know, I've been thinking about media from both sides of the camera for, for many years now. One of the things I like about, and you have a podcast as well, I want you to, to tell the listeners about that, but um, I'm a huge fan of that podcast. It's called Speak Good. And uh, you talked uh, with a guest recently about the value of telling stories. And there's just a lot of practical, good advice in your podcast. Yeah, thank you. It, it is the Speak Good podcast. The purpose of it is using the power of communication for good. And I think especially at this moment, understanding our ethical role in how we communicate, how we combat misinformation, how we can be more effective in our communications by telling better stories or having respectful but productive debates. These are the types of things uh, that I think about and the types of issues that we're hoping to cover. There's a lot of opportunity to give back and do good things, and, and now's the time to do it. They say the light shines brightest when it's dark, right? So uh, I, I appreciate what you're doing. Now, you're second in our series on crisis communications. Last week, we spoke with Molly McPherson about how to effectively communicate during a crisis. And, you know, other than her questionable taste in baseball teams, I think you guys are pretty well aligned on how to approach crisis communications. Yes, we've spoken before and have an AL East rivalry. I'm a Yankees fan. She is a Red Sox fan. But if the two of us can figure out a way to get along, and we have, uh, there's hope for the rest of us. And, you know, for the both of you, nobody's perfect, so we'll just move on. Uh, <laughs> what I'd like to do is step back a minute and talk about the preparation that's required to make sure that an executive team or a communications team is ready to speak with the media. 
So tell me about media training and specifically what's required to make someone an effective media spokesperson. My approach is always, let's start with you and go from there. And what I mean by that is we're not trying to create somebody that doesn't currently exist. What we're trying to do is identify for each person, each executive, what are the natural qualities that you have and that you you lead with in your everyday life? And how can we magnify those? And what are the things that might unintentionally be getting in the way of effective communication? And let's work together to reduce those. But there's no single archetype of what a, a good presenter or a good communicator tends to look like. Um, and to your first question, how do we go about preparing an executive for an interview? I mean, a lot of what we do is working on specific issues with companies. And so I think a lot of people have an impression of media trainers or coaches that we're trying to teach people how to spin better. And and that, at least from our approach, couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. We talk about what is important to you. What does your audience what, what do you want to share with your audience that you think is really important for them to know? And what does your audience trust, value, care about to make sure that what you want to share with them conforms to the things that they're thinking about every day? So that is always the basis of our discussion. And then, of course, as you would expect from media training, we get into how to navigate and answer some challenging questions. And in, in, that includes sometimes dealing with crises that might occur along the way. And we get into matters of physical delivery and body language because all of those things matter. But even on that challenging questions piece, one of the really interesting things sometimes when we get in a room with a, an executive is we'll ask a question in the context of a practice interview, and they will clearly be working very hard to try to figure out what the right answer is. And what I then say a lot of the times is forget the media training, just talk to me for my own personal background so I understand what's the real answer. And a surprising majority of the time, what they tell me in answer to that question becomes what the public answer is. I think sometimes people have been conditioned to believe that what the real answer is, is something they can't say publicly. And sometimes that is indeed the case for various reasons, but a majority of the time, that's exactly where they should be going first. Well, some follow-up questions to that, because you talk about difficult questions and being prepared and things like that. So What's your recommendation to a spokesperson if the journalist asks a question that they're not prepared for, or maybe they're afraid of it? Well, hopefully in a good media coaching session, whether it happens externally or internally, some of the more obvious challenging questions have already come to the surface. But even with all of that prep, you're right. It is entirely possible that the reporter will surprise you. And maybe it's something you legitimately weren't even aware of. I mean, if you're running a company let's say with a few hundred or a few thousand employees, inevitably somebody said something on social media or maybe to a smaller press outlet that didn't get your attention yet. And then suddenly you're you're asked to respond to that incident. I mean, the, the first thing is ask yourself whether even if you can't answer the specific question, you're able to say something more general about the topic. So, you know, I, I don't know the details of that specific allegation or, or question, but more generally, what I could tell you is our approach to that is X. And then the other approach you can take is to just be very direct and say, you know, I have not heard that. This is the first I'm hearing it. I'd rather not comment on something until I have the opportunity to learn more about it and get all of the facts. 
Uh, and I'd be happy to speak more about it uh, once I have the opportunity to do that. So I think sometimes if people, if executives understand that they don't have to be perfect and that there's an outlet in which they're able to say, you know, I really don't know, but I'll do my best to find out that that often is sufficient. That adds a level of transparency and honesty and, and probably goes a long way in, in helping with uh, their relationship, not only with the reporter, but also with the public. Now, it, it, let's say it's a tense situation and a, a spokesperson is uh, preparing uh, to, to do an interview. Maybe it's a, just a one-on-one -on -one interview. Who's in control during an interview like that? Is it the journalist or is it the spokesperson? Yeah, you know, that word control is something that I've thought about a lot. And I, several years ago on our on our old blog, I, I wrote a, almost a mea culpa of sorts, because when we first started our firm in 2004, if you went back and looked at our website, um, we talked about our promise to clients is teaching you how to control an interview. And I guess as I've continued in this business, I've realized, you know, what in life is really within our control? Um, and so I've, I've gotten away from that word. And what I think about is how do we develop a trusting and authentic relationship with the reporter and, and the audience that they reach? And I think that's a more productive mindset to go into an interview. I don't, I don't have control, especially if the piece is edited. I don't have control. Hmm. To the degree there's control, it's the person who has the power of the edit, and that's not me. But what I do hopefully have is some influence in you determining that I'm being straight with you. And if I can't tell you something because it's proprietary information, I'm going to tell you that I can't share it because it's proprietary information. Um, I'm going to be seen as someone who's a straight shooter, someone who answers questions thoughtfully, honestly, directly, uh, but stays away from the spin that I think the audience is pretty sophisticated in being able to spot. And so I think if you go into an interview with the mindset, I'm going to control this there's a pretty good chance that mindset will backfire on you and you coming across as someone who is trying to be controlling. And I'm not sure that's the person audiences tend to warm up to. So it's probably a slippery slope from asserting control and then coming off as being either abrasive or pushy. That's right. And I think there's a difference between message discipline, which in many cases can be a good thing and control and, you know, let's be honest, who among us likes to feel like we're being controlled by somebody else? Right. I want to go back to media training here for a second. When you provide media training, is that exclusively focused on the verbal side of communications, interviews and press conferences and things like that? Or does that training also help communications teams who have to draft statements during an emergency? Yeah, very much the latter. Uh, we all of us who work for ThruLine um, are former journalists. And so the editorial side of the house is really important to us. And what I've also found is that people cannot communicate messages or their ideas with effective, confident body language until they feel comfortable with what it is they want to say. And so for us, almost always the starting point is the content. What are the messages? What are you trying to get across? What matters to you and your audiences? Let's talk about in the context of a 12 or 10 or 15 second soundbite, how you might get that complex idea out in a way that the press can still use in a news piece. So that's often the basis of everything else that we do. And sometimes it's two thirds or three quarters of the time we spend together. Then once they feel like they own that, and they feel good about it, we could get onto the body language. And 
usually the starting point of their body language at that point is much stronger because they do feel confident with what it is they want to say. And then we can get a little bit more detailed with our feedback on everything from energy level and posture and pace and gesture um, that really influences the, the nonverbal side of the house. But I, I would say we, I, I found that it's ineffective to lead with body language because people are often flailing to still try to figure out what they're trying to say. I can really relate to that because um, I brought Molly McPherson in to do media training for a client of mine. And this was all right in the height of the pandemic and it was all on zoom. And she brought in a, an ex network news producer who played the role of an interviewer and without any preparation at all, uh, this uh, reporter was just asking fairly benign questions. And then every once in a while, she would throw in a little bit more of a zinger and nobody wanted to answer. You could see body language on the screen. People were leaning back away from the camera. And I was, man, I was ready to turn my camera off. I was like, don't ask me. I don't want to even be part of this. And then we did some training. And then at the end of the session, the same interviewer came back and, and had the same level of questions. And this time, everybody's body language was different because they were confident, they were prepared, they knew what to do. I can fully relate to what you're talking about. It's very, very fascinating to watch someone gain that confidence. And what's so nice about that format, too, where people are flailing at the beginning and successful at the end is that it becomes self-reinforcing for them too, that the power of preparation matters so much in determining the outcome. A lot of times I think people think, oh, I'll just wing it. I know how to talk about my company. This, this isn't that hard, but it is a very different format than everyday conversation and being exposed to that and, and uh, owning that that's true for you, I think really commits people to the idea of preparation. I, I like that. I think you're, you're spot on there. Now, you talked earlier about the Speak Good podcast and wanting to communicate good things and so forth. And, and that's so kind of counter right now to what we're seeing in the news world. Uh, it's easy to feel like facts don't matter. We have facts. We have alternative facts. And it seems like people will believe almost anything, really. I mean, if it's repeated often enough. Now, contrast that with the need to be truthful when dealing with a crisis within your organization. How can a politician get away with alternative facts and a CEO can't? I think it's because the stakeholders are so different. So if you're a politician, let's use the example of Donald Trump, because I think that's the, uh, the elephant in the room that has really changed a lot of the rules of the game when it comes to media interviews. In order for Donald Trump to have been successful and win the presidency in 2016, he only needed, what, 47% of the vote? Um, he didn't even win the majority of the popular vote, uh, but he had to win the majority of the electoral votes. Now, contrast that with a CEO. What CEO is going to be happy going out of their way to alienate 53% of their potential audience? Because their audience includes a retention pool of potential employees. So if you alienate 53% of people who want nothing to do with you because they don't share your values, that's a whole lot of potential employees you're not going to get to your company. It's going to alienate shareholders and investors. It's going to alienate vendors and suppliers. So I think the incentive structure is very different for a corporate CEO than it is a politician who may play to just enough people to win, but that looks very different for most corporate executives. And I think... Um... 
I was going to ask the follow-up that do you think that most CEOs understand that? And it, it would seem reasonable that they do. do. Do you think they get that? You know, I, I would analogize many CEOs much more to a small town mayor than I would to a, uh, a president of the United States. Because the mayor really has to have the ear on the ground and understand what's happening in their local town. And if constituents don't like what they're doing, uh, they're going to hear about it when they go for the walk, when they walk their dog or they go for a jog or they go into their local coffee shop. Um, And so I think CEOs often are much more likely to operate in that world because they are going to get communications, emails, angry constituents, whether it's an investor or a customer or a potential customer or, or an employee. So, yeah, in my experience, most CEOs really do get that. And, and so that's why I think it's, it, they're more the mayor than the president. But you and I and every other crisis comms or public relations person that we know is fully aware of all kinds of examples of people bungling their response to a difficult situation. And it just makes matters worse. What's the problem here? Is it a lack of preparation? Is it arrogance? Or is it something else that you see as the most common cause of someone sticking their foot in their mouth? Yeah. I mean, what were the two things you said? Arrogance and lack of preparation? Uh, uh, arrogance, lack of preparation, or yeah, any, you know, something else maybe. Yeah. Um, I think about that a lot. And yes, I mean, let's be clear, lack of preparation and arrogance are certainly on the list. But I have come to believe that if you think about the average executive, this is a person who has achieved some level of professional success. And part of that professional success was probably driven by the fact that they're a reasonably good communicator. They know how to speak to staff. They know how to speak to colleagues and customers and partners. And I think what happens sometimes is because they have had so much success in so many different types of communications, they make an assumption that the media is probably not much different. And unfortunately, it is very different. When you're speaking, for example, to a customer, you can speak for maybe, you can give maybe a two or three minute answer to a question that that customer has. But when you give that two or three minutes to a reporter, first of all, they they can't use that in most formats. But what a reporter can often do is just splice out 10 or 12 seconds of it and not use the rest of it. So suddenly that three-minute answer that worked perfectly when it was in context has something in it that could backfire when it's used out of context. And so that's just one example of how even even an executive who is a very good communicator in their daily professional life that person who tries to use those same techniques as a communicator during an interview may be surprised to find and, and horrified to find that to their surprise, it actually uh, created a real problem for them. And I think that's what ends up happening a lot of times when you do see those, uh, what I call seven second stray type interviews. The seven second stray is what I call it when you're on message for 59 minutes and 53 seconds of an hour long interview. And for seven seconds, you say something flip, sarcastic, or otherwise off your message. And that's what any good reporter is going to hear is interesting and put it into the story. And that's probably what makes most people nervous. That's what scares me to death is that they're going to take a clip and, and take it out of context. And, you know, next thing you know, you got trouble. And then trying to go back and say, well, I was misquoted or I was quoted out of context. That's like pushing a rock uphill, isn't it? Yeah. And that's where good media training hopefully helps a lot. I'll give you a specific example of a 
person giving a presentation, for example, might say to a, a challenging question, that's, that's a really important question. But I think the answer to that is no, we would never do that because, and then they go on from there. But doing that in an interview, the only thing the reporter may use is, when asked this question, Brad admitted, quote, that's a very important question. Mm-hmm. The rest of it doesn't, the rest of my answer didn't make it into the story. It changes how my answer sounded. Um, and so that's an example of what I mean by when you take it out of context, well, kind of, but I mean, we know the rules going into the interview. So good preparation hopefully helps you avoid those usually unintentional strays. I'll give you one more quick example. The um, famous example of the former CEO of British Petroleum, Tony Hayward, during the British Petroleum uh, oil spill, he became infamous for saying the lines, I'd like my life back. He was, and of course, he was blasted in the press for that self-interested quote. Many people had died on his oil rig. Uh, thousands of people on the Gulf Coast were out of work. And here he is talking about, I want my life back. Excuse me, how selfish are you? But when you listen to the entirety of the quote, what you realize is he was saying, I'm committed to solving this crisis. I want to get this right. Nobody wants to solve it more than I do. I'd like my life back. Now, does it sound great in that fuller context? No, it still doesn't sound great, but you're able to see the intention and his own personal motivation, if you see the full clip. But as we've been kind of hinting at, 99.9% of the people only heard the short clip. They didn't see the big one. I think the other trap is is sort of the leading question from the from the reporter who might say, is this your worst nightmare? And then if you say yes to that, then the next thing you know is the headline's going to be, Brad Phillips admits interview on the Resilient Journey podcast is his worst nightmare. You know what I mean? And it's just asking to be taken out of context. And, you know, there too, there's such an easy technique to use when you're asked that kind of question, which is, so let's talk about how I see the, the, this podcast. Um, And so you're basically uh, acknowledging the heart of your question, which is, do I think it's my worst nightmare, but I'm never going to repeat those words. I'm going to say, let's, let's talk about the podcast. Um, And so those are the types of, I mean, that's a great example of something most people intuitively don't think to do because they don't have to do it in their everyday life. But when the camera's on, suddenly it becomes important to have a few of those techniques in your back pocket. Yeah. Very interesting. I work with a lot of small and medium sized companies, like 200, 300 people. I'd say more than half of the time, the CEO is the company spokesperson. Is that the right approach? Or should they have maybe somebody like a SVP of corporate affairs or corporate comms as the spokesperson and then save the CEO in case they need to, you know, make that call to the bullpen and bring someone in if the situation escalates? What's the right approach there for that size company? Yeah, I think the way you're thinking about it is very similar to the way we think about it. Um, I, I think if you send the CEO out and the public doesn't perceive the crisis as being as large as you do, suddenly you sending the CEO out sends a message. This is a big deal. Uh, And conversely, if you send out the SVP for a a massive corporate crisis that the public would expect the chief executive to be speaking about, that could communicate this idea that you don't really care, you don't get it. Um, So I think there's a lot of factors that go into when should you go to the CEO, when should you go to somebody who's still senior, but maybe not the top executive. 
I think another factor is how good are they on TV? How good are they as a communicator? I mean, some chief executives that I've worked with are really brilliant in many ways as a business leader, but they don't necessarily come across with a lot of empathy. They may feel empathy. They may feel all the right things, but there's just something about their style that doesn't necessarily convince other people of that, at least not immediately. Uh, Sometimes people have to get to know them a little bit and they start to see those other qualities, but they don't lead with them. So then even in a big crisis, is that the person I want to send out there? Maybe you do want to go out with someone more junior, even if there's some risk in being perceived like you don't get it or or you're not sending out the, the big chief first. If that person is going to send the right message through their delivery, their their empathy, their sense of, I get it and I'm capable of doing something about it. So I think all of those factors go into the soup of deciding who should I put out onto the front lines. Brad, I'll get you out of here on this. You have so many great resources at the Throughline Group. I know you've written books. You have the podcast. You do the various trainings and so forth. If people want to get in touch with you to find out more about what Brad Phillips and the Throughline Group can offer, what's the best way to connect? Well, thank you. Uh, the Our website is throughlinegroup.com. And for anyone who's interested in hearing the podcast called uh, Speak Good, it's available on all the major podcast directories. And uh, we would love to share the message of putting some positive communication into the world and really help arm people with ways of being to be able to combat some of the misinformation as you were getting to earlier, uh, leading with false or distorted facts. That's the goal of it, uh, of the Speak Good podcast. And as a, you know, owner operator of a podcast and of a new podcast, um, there's enough room here for us to share this. And to my listeners, I strongly recommend the the Speak Good podcast. It's excellent. Uh, great for commuting. Great if uh, you're going to go for a walk. It's just the perfect length. And uh, uh, I highly recommend it. Brad, thanks for doing this. And I appreciate you. And I appreciate the time that you spent uh, on the Resilient Journey podcast. Mark, you're a terrific host and you made this easy. Thank you so much for having me. What a great conversation with Brad Phillips, president of the Throughline Group, and we thank him for being a guest today. Can I just say what a privilege it is to work with the folks at Clear Risk? A special thanks to them for sponsoring The Resilient Journey, and you can check them out at clearrisk.com. We continue our series on crisis communications next week with another dynamic guest as Warren Weeks joins the podcast. Warren is an acclaimed and highly sought-after media coach, and he has some great insights that you won't want to miss. Warren gives us some excellent tips on how to make the interview about your audience and not about yourself. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.